Welcome to the Doctors for the Environment Australia podcast, a podcast where we discuss topical planetary health issues and how impacts on the environment impact human health. This podcast is recorded all over Australia and we would like to acknowledge and pay respect to the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who have been custodians and guardians of this land for thousands of years, currently and into the future. There can be no climate justice without justice for First Nations peoples. Forbes, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, hello, yeah, my name is uh, Forbes, and again, I'm an elite citizen intensive care physician in uh, Western Health in Melbourne, Victoria. Uh, I also have a role as Associate Professor at the University of Melbourne and Sydney, both in the medical faculties, and uh, heavily involved with the doctors in the environment, particularly with uh, sustain, sustain Health, the sustainable um, uh, healthcare sort of part, special interest group. Excellent. And our listeners will... Awesome. Yes. It's very good to have you on today. We're going to be talking about essentially plastics, um, PPE waste in the hospital. And our listeners will probably be familiar with you from some media that was, um, I think it was out last year, or was it the year before, about um, a special hood that was designed for use in the ICU with COVID patients. So we thought maybe we'd start there and have you tell us a little bit about what made you um, start designing that and... How did you find it in practice? Yeah, I suppose that um, that was uh, an exciting and, and really uh, innovative and interesting collaboration with many people um, to develop uh, a patient isolation hood, which we called the McMonty, as in McGain and Monty, myself and Jason Monty is the head of chemical, uh, sorry, mechanical engineering at the University of Melbourne, along with a whole team of engineers there with him and quite a few researchers, ICU research nurses in particular at Western Health, along with ICU nurses, uh, some CSIRO atmospheric scientists, people who are normally uh, down on the in the one of the investigator boats, uh, looking at CO two measurements in the southern uh, uh, ocean, uh, spent time with us measuring aerosol generation and how effective the hood was in reducing the amount of aerosols being produced by by patients and by staff. So um, it was a really exciting process of being involved with something innovative and interesting. At the beginning of a pandemic back in March 2020 through to May, um, with then ongoing clinical studies looking further at, at how effective it was in reducing particularly healthcare worker-related infections because the idea is that it, it essentially becomes a, a sort of a fan and a filter and a little cocoon that, that keeps the patient um, safe but also prevents aerosols from being uh, distributed widely, particularly in areas such as Western Health ICU or an emergency department or uh, many other wards where negative pressure rooms are just not available and you are trying to prevent the, the spread of an airborne pathogen, SARS-CoV-2, um, beyond there. I think what we quickly realised is, you know, we've got to try and reduce aerosol spread, not just, you know, contact and 
and, and droplets on, on the floor, for example, or on, on hands. It was about trying to reduce aerosol or airborne risk. Mm. It's interesting. Um, Karen was telling me about this before we started this episode that you were quite keen to talk about this. Um, and we have some of these hoods at the Alice Springs Hospital in the emergency department, um, but they haven't been used yet. And I've only been there for a month. And when I got orientated, they were like, we have these hoods, pretty amazing. This is what they do, but we only have a couple of them and they're not reusable is what we were told. Can you talk a little bit about that side of things? Yeah, certainly. So, um, that's quite a complex story in many ways, and it begins this story that we we will march into in terms of PPE and waste. So when I first started with the engineers and Sam Bates, the research nurse and others, uh, with developing the isolation hood, we were, were quite aware that there were real constraints on supplies of plastics um, throughout the world. And so we were quite careful to develop a device that was in its entirety reusable. Uh, so we still at Western Health use uh, wipes to clean these, uh, the, the plastic canopies of the hoods uh, and did right from the very beginning. Uh, we involved infection prevention right from the beginning. We real, I realised very quickly that infection prevention was going to be the key to uh, all of these. It, it wasn't so much... Once you'd made a device, it was then, OK, how are you going to clean it, like many other devices in the um, medical field. Um, we were able to, yeah, work together with the, the team to do that. But quite early on, it was evident to me that uh, there was a strong push from others to make this single use because that is the default mm. for infection prevention uh, that it's safer if you're able to throw it away. Um, now that's a, a very powerful paradigm and we were able to work with, so what, what happened is, so when beyond, you know, when, you know, we, we got a patent, we developed this hood, it was a lot of fun, it was really interesting, it was useful. Then we realised, well, okay, a company actually has to manufacture this and I don't have the wherewithal or time or money to actually start that major manufacturing process. So, so in a sense, the, the, it was licensed out to uh, a company called Evan Evans um, who were very keen to, we'd been involved with them for very early on, and they developed uh, the hood. They initially were having reusable as well with the plastic coating of the plastic membrane, I suppose you say, or cocoon or covering. Um, however, I suppose it, you quickly realise that the Therapeutic Goods Administration, or TGA, uh, are very clear and understandably so that if you have a reusable product, it has to be proven to be reusable. Now, um, it, it's harder to sell a reusable product then it has to jump higher hoops than a disposable product. Uh, so you can see already systematic issues at play in why there is an increasing push towards disposable uh, equipment, particularly plastics. Uh, yeah. I'm not saying that's right, in inverted commas, but I'm saying I can understand why it happens. Um, and, and, and I think it's very, it's very important that, that the audience is aware of all of these barriers uh, that that end up for what why we end up with single use equipment everywhere, uh, what, uh, and so 
the company realised that it was easier to, less problematic to, to work with that process of having single-use equipment. Once they were able to um, source enough PVC plastic or other plastic uh, in the future to from overseas for the manufacturing. Australia doesn't make that much. We make a fair amount of certain types of plastics, but we certainly import the, import the vast majority. Um, as you know, with their petrochemical products, they come from oil and, mm. and uh, mainly from the, the Middle East, but also a place like Russia. Uh, and uh, that's then turned into plastics, mainly in China, but in quite a few other countries like Malaysia, for example, mainly mainly Asia. And so then, you know, you receive this product and then the, the company makes it. The other important point you raise is that different, uh, it was quite interesting, different hospitals or different infection prevention teams in different hospitals with, were, were had different viewpoints on that this should be single use, for example. Um, now, it's easier, in inverted commas, to say it's single use because then you don't have to clean it. You can then discard it after one use. I, I, I could talk for a lot longer about all this, but each of these are just, they're, they're all, and, and Alice Springs was a particular example of where um, it was made quite clear that we are going to have a single use product. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's really good hearing you go through it and kind of thinking about all of the sort of there's systemic issues really as to why things all kind of become single use rather than thinking of alternative options or making alternative options an easier pathway yeah i mean so i should have made it very clear that i have a uh, to the audience that i have a vested interest in what we're talking about right now the hood although i haven't made any money out of the hood at some point i hope to make a little bit of cash because we have a license so basically it's um there the, the hood is licensed through the university of melbourne and western health and I would mm. receive royalties as a part of that uh, and will at some point. So, yeah. you know, I have to be clear about that. I would also make it clear that I am no longer, as I was saying, I, I no longer, the, the licence is now uh, distributed to a, a company, Evan Evans, mm. and they make decisions about the hood now. Um, mm. uh, what we've been able to do is continue with the use of reusable uh, hood use at Western Health, but that's because we were the initial staging post in a sense for the development of it and so right from the very beginning cleaning of that has occurred there's been no to our knowledge in infection of staff who are cleaning this hood uh, even though it may have been containing a patient with COVID-19. Western Health in fact have treated one of the largest number of patients with COVID-19 in a hospital in Australia um, because we were very much at the centre of the, the western suburbs uh, outbreaks um, in COVID-19 in 2020-21. So, you know, there's been a lot of COVID-19 that healthcare workers have been exposed to. And there was initially a very high number of healthcare workers infected. And for a number of reasons, that has been much less. Whether the hood has contributed to that, I, I, I don't actually know. It would be very, it'd be impossibly large to do a randomised controlled trial and that sort of thing. So what we do know is the hood reduced the amount of aerosol count, um, whether that leads to reduced infection rates in healthcare workers is an entirely an unanswered question. I just had one very quick, uh, more clinical question out of my own curiosity. Can you use nebulizers within the hood? Yes. Cool. Thank you. That was one of the reasons why I used it, because we were yeah. unnecessarily... We were putting patients at risk. We were unnecessarily intubating asthmatics uh, early on. Mm. We actually had... Um, 
a couple of patients who ended up being, I thought, quite unnecessarily intubated, not just I, but a number of us, uh, mm-hmm. for, the, for the reason of worry about um, aerosol and nebulizers and that sort of stuff. And then after that, we wheeled, we, I remember wheeling the hood down in the ED and just putting out a patient and they got a nebulizer and they come up to ICU with a nebulizer. And the nebulizer is an extraordinary example of a, of a, a very high aerosol generating device, mm-hmm. by, by far the greatest of all. And, um, yeah, that was great to see that being used. Yeah, the second time around, that same patient was not intubated and they were very thankful. So, you know, mm. that's one that's st- stuck in my mind. I know it's just a clinical case, N equals one, but it's still interesting to, to see. Very relevant, though, because I know a lot of emergency departments have quite limited spaces that are negative pressure rooms where you could do aerosolizing procedures like nebulizers. And so definitely in the like, earlier stages of the pandemic, it almost felt like there was this big avoidance to use nebulizers. Oh, my question was, so I know you were initially designing it to try and reduce healthcare worker infections, but were you also thinking that if this was used, the PPE that healthcare workers have to use differs in any way? Okay, really interesting question. Before, the other reason why we developed it was because it was better patient care as well. So patients were able to have non-invasive ventilation um, and not be intubated so unnecessarily or so early on. So it was like two reasons. One was patient care and the second one was healthcare worker, if that makes of sense. Yep. But But you're right. Um, uh, what, yes, so it was something that certainly I was cognizant of, um, but that was not going to happen. I, I'm, not the, I'm not in charge of infection prevention, and it was made very clear that the gown use, uh, so that the, the hood would be in addition to standard therapy okay so contact and aerosol precautions so yes um yes and we we know that you've done a lot of work and research and implementing recycling programs where you do work so should we move on and talk about a little bit about the ppe issues around COVID 19 absolutely yeah (laughs) where should we start i thought we could start with a, a fun fact which I thought was incredible, um, the amount of medical waste that's just been produced from COVID. Um, so in Wuhan, they usually generate 20 tonnes of medical waste per year, and it's gone up to 240, sorry, 20 tonnes of medical waste per day, and it's gone up to 240 tonnes per day, and their incineration capacity is only 50 tonnes. So there's this huge excess of PPE that's being produced, and I'm sure that's not just in Wuhan, but across multiple different health districts in different countries. Um, so it's it's a huge, huge increase in PPE since the COVID pandemic began. Yeah, um, another example, um, just at you know Western Health in Melbourne, which serves about eight hundred thousand people. Um, we normally use around two hundred thousand disposable barrier gowns per annum, which is still a large number, uh, mainly for people with multi resistant you know, infections, uh, bacterial infections, VRE, for example, um, we've, it was about five to six times as much. So it's not as dramatic as perhaps Wuhan has seen, but it's still, you know, a five-fold increase, six-fold increase. That's massive. We, we went through more than a million gowns, well and truly, at Western Health last year. Um, so you could also see, see gowns and gloves and things like that. Karen, the reason why I just mentioned gowns is, is mainly because... Um, Gowns are an interesting one for a uh, a disease which is spread by the air. There are a number of different areas you could target, and if you just think of it simplistically, there's the masks, there's the gowns, and there's the gloves. They're the big three 
of what we use day to day. Yes, there's face shields and other things as well, but generally it's not it's quite as much. So um, you could have targets and, and examinations of how you could reduce the use of all of those. Uh, to give you an example in the intensive care unit, and certainly very similarly on many wards where patients with COVID-19 or other you know, or bacterial infections, for example, that require contact precautions, um, a nurse could easily use 20, 30, 40 gowns a day and, and uh, double that in terms of gloves, for example. Um, yeah. The actual waste of masks, though, is not quite, quite as dramatic because you can wear a mask. Most people will wear a mask and take it off during breaks and you know, so it'll be discarded. But you might go through, instead of 20 or 30 or 40 gowns, you might go through three, four, five masks a day. So it's not, it's not really of the same category of waste. And how much, like a gown is quite a lot larger than a mask or gloves, so... Yeah, that's why we, I personally, well, we've been looking at both masks and gowns. I haven't focused at all on gloves. I think gloves are a difficult one um, to, to work on. Um, uh, having reusable gloves, for example, or reducing the use of gloves. That, that's interesting. I mean, as you say, we could go many different directions now, so I, I might be... I could talk for a long time about all these different things. Needless to say is that all of these areas are of interest to me and to interest to many others. What is perhaps disturbing is that there hasn't, over the two-year period of COVID-19, there hasn't really been a change in how we approach the reality of the world. Um, everyone just says, you know, initially there was a concern that we would run out. Um, as you know, um, uh, China, for example, was buying up PPE and returning it back. To, to China, uh, from Australia and other places. Uh, they were actually taking it back. Um, so yeah. there was a real concern that, and they were doing that for their national uh, stockpile in a sense. Um, but we, yeah, we, we were in real trouble of running out, um, but that did not eventuate and uh, the, the flow of PPE rolls on. Mm. I think what our listeners are interested in is, is there a way for them to safely reduce their PPE use? And if not, are there alternatives that are better for the environment? Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's one when you say you're... I mean, what we really need, uh, I think, is a, a meaningful discussion that involves infection prevention. So we can have as many ideas as we like, but they're irrelevant unless they involve infection prevention because they decide. Uh, so... Uh, surgeons, you know, other doctors, intensive care physicians, and instructors, whoever they are, they can have as many ideas as they like. Uh, unless they involve infection prevention in that process, nothing will change. Uh, it's very important to involve infection prevention in the discussion, being aware that there's a paradigm that, that, that makes that very difficult. Because, you know, in the end, uh, discard after one use means that the risk is for infection is low uh, to reuse something or to extend the use of something uh, does introduce risk you know i mean the, the the issue is how much risk are we prepared to take um and that's that's one i think that needs a lot more exploration and what i mean by that is that i personally think that the risk of COVID-19 infection being spread by staff not wearing PPE gowns is probably quite low. Uh, I think most people would agree with that. Uh, I think most infection prevention people would, would agree with that as well. 
uh, I think that's very different to wearing an N95. I think you should wear an N95 when you're in a hospital where there's even, you know, a, a, a small or reasonable chance that someone will be carrying COVID-19, which, of course, increases even amongst staff, healthcare staff. If there's if it's prevalent in the community, if, you know, there are kiddies who've got infection and, you know, their staff members are bringing it in unknowingly because they're asymptomatic. And so it's all real with N95s. Mm. But gowns is a very different story. And so... At a, you're suggesting if you want to have a change at a local level, you need to involve your infection control team. But I guess in terms of COVID, most hospitals are following national guidelines. So that's another kind of way that makes it really challenging to to make changes. So, so a bit like climate change, this is a wicked problem. It's a wicked problem. Um, and I say, I say that most um, genuinely, uh, that it, this is not something... So you, you mentioned that I've been involved in recycling and things like that in the past. Yes. So... Um, there's lots of good things we've been doing, but they are they are things where I have realised that they can so so for example, instead of having a disposable drug tray, you can have a reusable drug tray. Instead of having a disposable gown, you can have a reusable gown. That those sorts of things they're relatively easy to do because they don't actually involve infection prevention. They're not changing the risk of infectious disease. It might be very small, but yes, it's not it's not a large one. Whereas here we're talking about, oh, okay, how can we stop, you know, a nurse from using 40 gowns a day? Um, because every time they go in to see the patient, they have to don. Every time they come out, they have to doff. Every time they go back in, they have to don and they doff and that sort of thing. So, mm. yes, you can do certain things like, okay, well, the, the nurse now has to make the entire section dirty and the computer's dirty, everything's dirty, you stay in the gown, uh, you wear it, you sweat dreadfully because, you know, <laughs> PPE gowns are like that. Uh, imagine Alice Springs. I don't want to imagine Alice Springs in a PPE gown um, uh-huh. in summer. So it's it's all those sorts of things. There are things that can be done and certainly have been done, but it's really interesting to think about, uh, for example, in the UK, the move where a lot of hospitals now, instead of using gowns at all, uh, they use a little plastic apron, which is still, yes, waste, but in the end it's all about mass. So a little plastic apron weighs about a fifth as much as a gown or maybe even a tenth. You know, they're very, very slim. So it's the mass of the plastic that matters in terms of waste. So, you you know, they're, they're below the elbows and a plastic apron instead of um, gloves and gown when treating a patient with COVID-19. And, and these are things that have been happening. They've been evolving in other countries. I haven't seen that evolution in Australia, but I reckon, I reckon as we become COVID normal, uh, unless there's you know other very malignant forms of you know uh, the Greek alphabet that keep coming, pies next, um, for SARS-CoV-2, then you know there's going to be um, uh, you'll be interesting to see. I suspect there will be a change in behaviour that all of a sudden the national guidelines will just say, okay, you don't have to wear gowns anymore. I think that will eventually happen. But then, it's amazing. then it raises the question of, well, what the hell were we doing? You know, and, and why do we change on that day? Uh, you, know, there's all, you know, like, as you know, similarly with the use of N95 masks or masks in the community and masks in indoor spaces, magic happens and bang, it's gone. It's, it just disappeared. Mm. You know, like they're, they're actually, they're not really clinical decisions that are being made. And I guess, it's, well, I guess one of the issues around COVID was the evidence takes so long to get firm evidence to make these decisions yeah i think the other important point i raise about gowns often and this is raised by infection prevention which is quite reasonable is that the worry 
and there are a lot of worries. I mean, we we worry about many things in medicine about what if that you know a COVID nineteen patient may actually have VRE as well and all those sorts of things. So there's there's mm-hmm. a lot of those uh, one size fits all approaches. Um, uh, you know, a virus is actually not as problematic on a gown by any means as a multi-resistant bacterium because the multi-resistant mm. particularly if it's a spore-boring bearing such as Clostridium difficile, mm. you know, spores are just going to hang around for many, many, you know, potentially years um, if, if you let them. Uh, so, so it's a very different, you know, you can see the spectrum of things there. Interesting. And I guess you touched on this briefly, but I guess one of the issues with the huge amount of waste that we're producing because of this is that they're made from fossil fuels, so we have to extract fossil fuels. We have to process them, which makes a large amount of carbon dioxide, and then we have to either incinerate them and put them in landfill, which then releases carbon dioxide again. So potentially people are wondering whether if we still need to wear PPE, regardless of what the decisions are on gowns, are there alternatives, are there viable, reusable gowns, or are there alternatives that are less um, have less of an impact on the environment? Yeah, there's some good... Um resources, particularly on gout. Gloves are more difficult, um, as are N95s, although we are looking at a reusable N95. Um, but just focusing on gowns, because that's the, the big one, um, there are reusable gowns. You could easily use reusable gowns. In fact, many, sorry, not many, but there are a few hospitals in Australia that use reusable gowns. A good example of that at, is at the Princess Alexandra Hospital in Brisbane, where they have, uh, they have their own laundry and they actually have lots and lots of reusable gowns and they've you know developed that process with one of the local manu- local companies that actually make the gowns uh, in Australia uh, cotton comes from the darling downs it's all you know it's all it's all australian um, i have a good you know contact um, who's been involved in that sort of in that process um, Muriel chamberlain and um, uh, that's been um, that, that's been eye-opening. Um, we know in many other countries, particularly the UK, a lot of reusable gowns, but also the US, actually. It's, there are some US hospitals that have gone to reusable gowns. That does not reduce the number of gowns. It, it's just chase. So we are doing the same here at Western Health. We're just getting a trial going now. It's taken a very long time, but we've got a little pilot in the ICU just about to get underway where we're replacing in a couple of the ICU bays the disposable gowns, and now we're going to use reusable gowns. Yes, there will be the washing, very much so. The good thing is on the horizon is, at least in Victorian public hospitals, the entire electricity supply of all hospitals will be 100% renewable by 2025. So, so we'll, be like, we'll be like Tasmania and South Australia and the ACT. Um, but, but it also shows you that... So this is an entirely other discussion, but renewables make reusables better. And so... And so it's beholden upon doctors now to actually be aware of that process and then say, ah, here's another good reason to go reusable. Yes, or renewable, so that you can use reusable. Correct. But what I mean is, no, no, but what I'm saying is, so in Canberra, really, there is no excuse now for not having reusable gowns instead of disposable gowns because yes. the, the carbon story is very much in favour of them now. Mm. Uh, the cost is probably going to be fairly similar. We, we sort of know that. But cost is an interesting one. We could talk a long time about that, but cost is almost... Um, you could imagine a company knowing what the alternative is and so their cost... They match it. Well, we matched. You know, that's just... That's, that's, right. just, that's, just, that's the market. 
And so how difficult is it implementing that? Does it, like, it fits in the healthcare infection control standards as long as you have appropriate processes in place? Yeah, there's there's no distinction. Uh, it's more the process. It's not distinction between reusable and disposable. It's more that the process um, needs to be rigorous. There should be quality assurance. People should be checking what they're doing. It's that sort of thing that, that's important. It's not that it shouldn't happen. It's more that... You know, like as I said, we've we, you know infection prevention have been very supportive of this at Western Health. It's um, uh, of the trial of reusable gowns. They don't have a problem with that. What they were concerned about was okay. Let's just make sure we're not changing what is happening. Apart from we're just swapping one gown for another. We're not yeah, yeah. I- extending the use of gown is actually much more interesting to me. Because, you know, now we're going to use... A nurse uses 30 disposable gowns. Oh, now they're using 30 reusable gowns. To me, that's not really the point of this. I want to say, oh, okay, and now the nurse actually is safer because they're not doffing. Because as you know, doffing is a danger time. They're not doffing 30 times a day. They're actually doffing only about, you know, 10 times a day or five times or a couple of times a day. And so that risk is actually safer to them. And at the same time, you've got a gown that actually is, is better. Do you mean you can doff less frequently if you're in a gown that you find more comfortable, you don't get as sweaty? Yeah, but you've got to create a gown that has innate resistance to bacteria or is less absorbent or more absorbent or, you know, there are all these... You can see that's a very complex pathway to follow uh, and that's an interesting one that we are following at the moment with some University of Melbourne team, but it's, it's, it's very early days because I've quickly realised this is a hard nut to crack. The, the development of the hood was actually quite easy, really. I mean, because the hood is a novel product. It didn't exist beforehand. And we just, you know, said, here it is. And so you asked that question about, you know, PPE reduction, that sort of thing with the hood. No, the hood is beyond that. It's not even on the PPE registry. It doesn't, doesn't exist. Um, but it's, it's something novel. Whereas this is, okay, we're changing, we're changing something entirely by extending the use of gowns. Interesting. So for that, obviously, is a whole different kind of risk assessment process. But for people who potentially would have the option, substituting out for reusable gowns is something that could be done now, as long as they had appropriate processes in place. Yes, that's right. So that would definitely, yes, they know that, can, that can definitely happen now. And that would give them the biggest bang for their buck as well, because the, in terms of PPE, gowns have the most weight of plastic in them. So if you were going to change one thing, that should probably be the thing to do first. Yeah. And also, as you'd imagine, gloves, there isn't really a, an alternative solution, apart from not wearing gloves as much. And in fact, infection prevention are mm. quite understanding of that, not so much with COVID-19, but, you know, because of a novel product. But and, and, and as you say, it's not like, you know, the infection prevention officer of Western Health can actually say, OK, well, no one can, everyone doesn't have to wear gowns anymore. That's not going to happen because that's actually mm. a state department directive. That's very, very high. I mean, little Forbes McGain can't change that. You know, I mean, so don't think for a moment that I've got any power whatsoever. Uh, and don't think you have either. I mean, that's why I say it's really important. So that's why it's so different to like there's certain things I can do in my daily work as an anaesthetist or intensive care physician that can actually have quite dramatic ramifications that I have, that I have, that I have agency over. But I do not have agency at all about infection prevention. That's completely out beyond my control. That's that's something where I have to work and collaborate with others to do. I, I find it fascinating. Mm. Absolutely. I wonder if we should just touch on very briefly about what some of the health impacts of having so much excess PPE are. 
just very broadly? <laughs> um, so that, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, I mean, if you think of, I mean, there are a few different domains there. The first one, I mean, yeah, you could just say like the waste. Um, so if you think of the physical waste of rubbish going to landfill and the, so there's just that process. Then there's the, the manufacture of plastics from a distant part of the world and the transport of it and digging up, you know, pumping up oil from um, another country far away. So there's that sort of carbon footprint. Then there's the use of it, which has, we'll get into maybe those biological things in a moment, donning and doffing, etc. Um, but then there's also the discard and that actually is quite energy intensive because it depends on which jurisdiction you're in. I don't know, Alice Springs, I think, will just burn it um, or send it even worse in a way, send it in a truck down to Adelaide and burn it because then there's mm-hmm. that 1,200 kilometres of truck. Um, and the other, uh, yeah, those those sorts of factors, are, that's actually quite carbon intensive to burn it um, or to to hammer mill it and crush it and then put bleach on it and then chuck it away into landfill. So all those things are important. They're, they're all factors. I think what we shouldn't forget is the existential little bit of worry, the cognitive dissonance that we all go through, or most of us do, maybe some people don't care, but um, it's just that concept of, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but oh, well, that's life. I don't have any control of it. You know, you don't, you don't have any control of it. Uh, I know that myself, I feel that uh, after sweating like a pig in the PPE and then thinking, oh, well, here goes another one, Dr. Forbes, dressed in oil. Uh, we are all dressed in oil. And mm. then, so there's that existential, you know, cognitive dissonance worry. Um, and uh, uh, along with that, I think, is just, you know, the plastics themselves, they're lofted in types. And, and we could be doing better things with this, you know. We could just do, be, be doing it much in a much better way. We could choose a different route. Um, but we haven't. The whole world hasn't, you know. You mean non-fossil fuel-based? Yeah, or just not being so wasteful. And, and, a good, and I'll give you an example of this. I mean, I've sort of reflected, I've, sorry, I've thought about PPE a lot the last few years. But isn't it interesting that you, we have developed this quite advanced technology of textiles, of Kevlar for soldiers, of extreme fire retardant, retardant material for firefighters. And for healthcare workers, what do you get? Plastic bag. Essentially, that's what it is. You get a bit of plastic. Thank you. Bye-bye. And not only that, but then you're expected to don and doff it 30 times a day. And that doffing process, we know. I mean, there's been multiple infection prevention studies that have shown that is the danger time. I mean, with Ebola, that is when danger happens, when you doff because you release it. And so surely we should be thinking about, well, maybe we should be working out something where you don't need to be doing that much or you impregnate the material and make it, you know, as good as the firefighter's fire retardant material or the Kevlar or the soldier. What are some kind of um, more innovative things that we could be doing? Yeah, I think there's a whole story here that that is beginning to unfold. But the actual, um, you know, you could say material science and membrane technology um, is actually at a very high level, as you'd imagine, for the military uh, or for firefighting and other areas. Um, There's no reason why that couldn't be applied in different ways to healthcare workers. I think probably part of the reason why it hasn't is because pandemics come and go. Uh, and that, you know, there's this gentle background use of uh, 
you know, disposable equipment, and they work. You know, I mean, so if you wear a plastic bag and treat a patient with VRE, um, that works. That that will prevent um, the infection. It's not because the plastic itself has any inherent ability to be antimicrobial. Um, it's more that it's a barrier. It's just simply a barrier, and so it stops infection. Uh, and it's cheap. It is relatively cheap, you know, compared to even with a million plus gowns being used at Western Health, for example, per annum, that's a very small part of the overall budget of the hospital. Uh, and even if that price has increased dramatically in the last few years. Uh, so I think there are real, once again, barriers of why things don't happen. These are, these are interesting I, reasons. You're aware that there's research going on or you're working on potential... Um, Alternatives, for example, for masks. I know Kaya and I saw that there are now masks that look like um, they're being produced. The mask itself is reusable and washable um, for healthcare workers. Yeah, there are a few. So with gowns, um, what I would say is certainly it isn't in common use that I've seen anywhere in Australia or know of from colleagues in other countries uh, in Europe and the US that, you know, we've suddenly got all these gowns that are, you know, uh, highly antimicrobial resistant because that is not happening in clinical use. It may be starting to happen in research laboratories, which is exciting, um, and we want to be involved in that sort of thing, but it's a long time. It's a long lag time there. It's interesting because if you go to buy some athletic wear, they're always trying to sell you antimicrobial athletic wear. That, that's really, and, and that, that's a really interesting point you raise. It's something that's been raised by a few of my colleagues and how different that is. And so and the, the unfortunate fact is that will not change one iota of things in healthcare unless you can prove that it actually does reduce uh, in a clinical sitting, setting um, spores or microbes or viruses, for example. Yeah, no, great point that you raised, Karen, but, but that's... It, all we need is for companies to say, oh, there's this huge market out there called medicine. We could actually be moving into that and that'd be quite exciting. Is there anything else, Forbes, that you think is really important for health professionals to know about or be thinking about in this area at the moment? I, I think what I'm... Uh, well, in terms of PPE, um, I think it's a... As I was trying to say, it's a very tricky area because... It, it it does involve the involve the agency of a single person. Uh, I can go in and you know change reusable to disposable products, working with other um, you know people in theatre, for example, or in the in the ICU. That can happen in the ED. Um, yes, you can have um, reusable gowns instead of disposable gowns. I think that's something that can you know people can do. You can't just do it, but that's a next step of where you can work with infection prevention to change things because. There already exists that technology of having a reusable gown versus a disposable gown. Um, if you're wanting to change, what I wanted to get across is if you want to change or extend the use of gowns or reduce the use of them, uh, then that's another level entirely. There, is, there are many PhDs in studying, um, you know, uh, the rates of transmission of glove, you know, infections between different, you know, uh, Different different patients and different cohorts of healthcare workers and different surfaces or using antimicrobial impregnated or silver or any metals for the different products here, and I think involving but you see it's like I mean it quickly becomes much bigger than one person it involves research scientists you know um, it, it's it's a long hard road 
I really want to make mm. people aware that this is not something that is going to happen easily. And that's why it hasn't. I mean, that is why we keep using what we keep doing what we're doing, because the alternative is really hard. The, 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 um, the hurdle is very high. It's very high. Um, because the appetite for infection risk is, is very low. So correspondingly, you must you must vault that uh, with a great deal of ambition. Okay, so let's all let's all remain ambitious, but so that we don't get people too depressed if they're looking to make changes themselves. What are the low hanging fruit that they can go for? Yeah, no, the low, the low hanging fruit are. I mean, look, there are simple things. Um, so, for instance, if you're you're there, and I'll say this, you know, because it's mainly you know doctors for the environment. Uh, if you're there on a ward round, um, yes, examining patients is important. I mean, there's actually studies where they've shown that if people are isolated, um, they are less likely to be examined or looked at or taken history of patients because no one wants to go in and everyone get, finds it too frustrating and they don't want to wear PPE and all this. So it's quite interesting. There's a reduction in care uh, of patients mm. as well. So it's really important that we don't just don't isolate people unnecessarily. Um, I think unnecessary use of antibiotic use is contributing to that. So I think antimicrobial stewardship is incredibly important. So I, and I, so I know this seems irrelevant. I think that the concept of stewardship of uh, getting off IV antibiotics, if you not starting in the first place, and getting off them is really important really quickly onto oral is really important because not only is it bad for the patient to have this IV cannula hanging around in their cubital fossa with bugs growing, uh, it's also it's more expensive, it's got a higher environmental footprint, the patient stays in the hospital longer. You know, there are multiple patient, social, psychological, environmental, financial reasons why that should be the case. So I don't need to sell antibiotic stewardship much more. Um, so that's, that's one thing I think you can actually do indirectly. Secondly is when you go on a ward round and see patients, you don't all need to go in and see the patient. Yes, you should see the patient, but you don't all need to necessarily go in there into an isolation room and so everyone wears a gown and everyone wears gloves and all unless there's a really strong teaching point or, or a you know examination finding that's of importance to, to junior doctors and medical students for example uh, I think that's another important point there are good things that nurses can do to reduce the amount of gowns being used um, so if for instance there are a uh, you know you can cohort patients there are things that you can do. So they've all got COVID-19 and so one nurse can actually cohort that group and wear the, the one mm-hmm. gown amongst multiple patients. That is something that is tricky because uh, there's the concern that you might be spreading something else like BRE or whatever. But certainly that's happened and it's common for that to happen uh, amongst um, hospitals and, and has been over the last few years. So cohorting patients is important. Um, I think I think the other, uh, some of the other... Uh, uh, processes are more difficult we start to get into more difficult areas if you're going to try to extend the use of gowns is what I've talked about I think reusable gowns is, is a really important one I think that it would be great if there's greater momentum I think amongst doctors to say oh hang on why can't I have a reusable gown and, and I think the way of doing that too is not just working with eviction prevention it's also that could be, there could be so much more of that in the operating theatre. So why do surgeons have to all have disposable gowns or anaesthetists, wherever they are? Um, we don't at Western Health. The vast majority don't. But And so it's what I'm saying is it's, it's normal not to have that in, in, some, in some hospitals in Australia. So I think there are other areas you can reach into to think, well, hang on, no, I, I don't want this disposable gown anymore. Um, I want a reusable one. Uh, I think that that can be very powerful as well. So I think... 
Um, but I think you're working with infection prevention to change this is 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 a challenge. Uh, and I want I think it's important, Karen, that I say that though, because otherwise people will go away and think, yeah, great, I can change the world. No, you can't. You can't in this area because and that's why it hasn't happened. That's why people mm. keep using disposable, you know, like billions literally of, of gowns have been used now um, since the pandemic started because it works. It's a barrier. It really does. Right. It, it works. But we're not thinking of externalities. So you have to be committed. You have to be very engaged with the infection prevention control team, very committed if you want to make it happen. Oh, absolutely. And even then it may not happen, as, as has been proven by the fact that it has not happened yet. I think what we do need, um, what's interesting, just as an aside, is I don't know how many DEA members are infectious diseases consultants or people. I, I, it's, it's really interesting to reflect upon the, the body, the corpus of DEA. There are a lot of GPs, a lot of public health, quite a few anaesthetists, um, renal, yeah, a bit of renal sprinkling in there. I, I have no idea how many, I don't know of any infectious disease physicians who are DEA members. I don't know. I, mean, I suspect there are a few out there. I mean, I don't know. But I think it'd be a fascinating, this is unrelated in a way, but it'd be a fascinating story of seeing how many dermatologists or cardiologists or uh, ENT surgeons or orthopods. I mean, are there any orthopods who are DEA members? You know, like, I mean, I, mean, I say that most genuinely because we need them. We, we need them all. Mm. And, and yeah, wouldn't that be, I think that's another thing to, to look at, uh, like the, the membership of DA. I'm not interested in names, but it'd just be interesting to see what the membership of DA, because we need these subgroups to work on this. I need a champion. Yeah. I absolutely need a champion of um, infection prevention uh, to be a member of the DA to say, yeah, let's, let's work on this. It's going to be hard, but let's work on it. No one else mm. has done it. That's probably a wonderful point to end on, I think. It's um, just a reminder that it's like it's the doctor's responsibility as well to try to create this change, um, even if it's hard to keep working on things. Yeah, I mean, this, this problem of PPE is not going to be changed by the federal government. No. No, this is our problem. We've got to sort it out. We are the ones that are wasting. It's us. You can't even blame infection prevention, really, because they are part of us. You know.